Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. As always, the podcast is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, now part of Networks, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era, ControlUp. Happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And before I get into the news, just a reminder that the Festive Tech Calendar supporters are running competitions through the month of December. So if you'd like to be in for a chance to win many different prizes, including prizes from this podcast. I'm giving up a Elgato Stream Deck, a Raspberry Pi 4, and a book on running ESXi on a Raspberry Pi that was authored by Patrick Kennedy and Tom Fenton to one lucky winner. So if you'd like to be able a chance to win that and many other prizes, be sure to go to festivetechcalendar.com slash home slash supporters to learn more. And without further ado, let's get into some news. This week, the AWS reInvent event was held in Las Vegas. They made several announcements, and I must be honest, this was long and I trimmed the fat pretty significantly. I'm trying to be cognizant of the feedback I got when I went way too long on the VMworld announcements a few months ago. But anyway, during the event, they announced what they called the next generation for EC2, and it's called Graviton 3. They say it offers 25% faster speeds, booster performance for science, cryptographic, and machine learning workloads, and the Graviton also uses up to 60% less energy. Sounds pretty good. There's also a new C7G instance for EC2, And that's the first available for Graviton 3. In total, they announced eight new compute instances, including the fastest Intel Xeon scalable processor in the cloud. They also added five new storage products, including the lowest cost storage with millisecond retrieval, and it's called Glacier Instant. Also during the event, they announced AWS mainframe modernization, which they say aims to help AWS customers get off their mainframes as fast as they possibly can in order to take better advantage of the cloud. They say that the mainframe modernization solution will offer compilers to convert code as well as testing services to make sure no functionality is lost during the translation. If the customer wants to refactor or decompose the application, if the components could be run in EC2 in containers or in Lambda, for instance, then they can use the mainframe modernization solution to automatically convert the COBOL code over to Java. They went on to explain that a migration hub lets customers track their migration progress across multiple AWS partners and solutions from a single location. Also announced during the event was AWS Private 5G, which is a new way to set up and scale a private mobile network in a few days rather than months. 
They stated that AWS sends everything you need from hardware to software to SIM cards. So I guess they all send everything together, everything you need. And also automatic configuration makes it ideal for factories and workplaces. And you can ask for as many devices to be connected as you need. They stated that there's nothing like AWS private 5G network out there today. Also announced was a new Amazon SageMaker Canvas that will let users create machine learning predictions even if they don't have any machine learning experience and with no need to write any code. This should let more users than ever before get the most out of machine learning no matter what level of experience they have. So to me, it kind of sounds like a workflow constructor concept that is becoming popular in many different tools. Goldman Sachs and AWS announced a partnership where they plan to offer quicker access to financial data to analyze and manage investment data. Also announced was AWS IoT Twin Maker, which will make it easier for companies to create and use digital twins of real world systems. It includes nifty tools such as pre-built connectors to data sources, automatically built knowledge graphs, and 3D visualizations and real-time updates. They announced the general availability of Amazon Workspaces Web, which is a new capability for their end-user computing suite. They say it's a low-cost managed workspace built specifically to facilitate secure web-based workloads. They say Workspaces Web makes it easy for customers to safely provide their employees with access to internal websites and SaaS web applications without the administrative burden of appliances or specialized client software. Workspaces Web provides simple policy tools tailored for user interactions while offloading common tasks like capacity management, scaling, and maintaining browser images. Workspaces Web is available in Northern Virginia, Oregon, and Dublin and will be coming to additional regions in 2022. Also announced was Amazon DevOps Guru for RDS, which aims to bring automation to detect performance issues in databases and also to automatically take quick corrective actions. And we pretty much just scratched the surface of all of the announcements. There's a laundry list of different announcements and you can find in a complete list if you'd like to review for yourself at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 205. In other news, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint is currently blocking Office documents from being opened and some executables from launching due to a false positive tagging the files as potentially bundling an Emotet malware payload. BleepyComputer.com reported that Windows Systems admins are reporting that this is happening since updating Microsoft's Enterprise Endpoint Security Platform definitions to version 1.353.1874.0. When triggered, Defender will block the file from opening and throw an error mentioning suspicious activity linked to win 32 or powemotet.sc. Microsoft haven't shared any information about what's causing this as of the recording of this episode, but Bleepy Computer speculated that the most likely reason is that the company has increased the sensitivity for detecting emotet-like behavior and updates released this week due to <laughs> the reasons I've covered on this podcast around emotet, and I'll actually talk a little bit more about uh, in another story. 
So hold tight, there's a lot of InfoSec news this week. Speaking of which, Bleeping Computer reported this week that a former employee of networking device maker Ubiquitu was arrested and charged with data theft and attempting to extort his employer while posing as a whistleblower and an anonymous hacker. It's alleged he exploited his access as a trusted insider to steal gigabytes of confidential data from his employer, then posing as an anonymous hacker, sent the company a nearly $2 million ransom demand. As further alleged, after the FBI searched his home in connection with the theft, he, as then was posing as an anonymous company whistleblower, planted damaging news stories falsely claiming that the theft had been by a hacker enabled by a vulnerability in the company's computer systems. According to the indictment, the former employee stole gigabytes of confidential data from Ubiquitous AWS and GitHub infrastructure using his cloud administrator credentials, cloning hundreds of GitHub repositories over SSH. Throughout the process, the defendant tried hiding his home IP address using Surfshark's VPN services. However, his actual location was exposed after a temporary internet outage. I guess things reset. So I think several months ago, or maybe even last year, I covered the Ubiquitu story. And it seems the perpetrator was working from the inside. What a tangled web we weave. And now to break up the security stories this week, something a little bit different. This week, Microsoft announced a public preview of FSLogix profiles for Azure AD joined VMs and Azure Virtual Desktop. The preview allows you to create an Azure file share to store the FSLogix profiles and configure it to support Azure AD authentication. For customers trying to reduce cost, it's now possible to deploy a pooled environment using Azure AD joined Windows 10 and Windows 11 Enterprise multi-session VMs. The release notes go on to suggest that some of the key benefits of using Azure AD joined VMs includes no line of sight to a domain controller, simplified deployment, and enhanced management with Intune. The new Azure AD functionality leveraged in this preview allows Azure AD to issue Kerberos tickets to access SMB shares. This removes the need to have access to a domain controller from the session host VM and network share. You can now store your FSLogix user profiles on Azure file shares and access them with Azure AD joined VMs. It says that the functionality currently requires the users to have hybrid identities managed in Active Directory. I also noticed there was a separate Microsoft doc published this week explaining Kerberos authentication and suggesting it as part of another preview, which I'm assuming is the preview that I just mentioned for FSLogix. I also saw that Microsoft Steve Sifus posted a really nice explanatory thread on Twitter going into Kerberos authentication in this preview and why it was so difficult of a problem to overcome. And it's uh, very informative and definitely worth a read. Also coming to public preview is Microsoft Azure Active Directory custom security attributes and user attributes in attribute-based access control conditions. Microsoft say that they created the custom attributes feature based on feedback they received from managing attributes in Azure AD and attribute-based access control conditions in Azure role assignments. 
It said that in some scenarios, you need to store sensitive information about users in Azure AD and make sure only authorized users can read or manage this information. For example, you might want to store each employee's job level and allow only specific users in HR to read and manage that attribute. You may also need to categorize and report on enterprise applications with attributes such as the business unit or sensitivity level and more. So a lot of positive enhancements and developments for Azure AD this week. The Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager version 2111 update was also published this week with some interesting enhancements, including improvements to automatic deployment rules search criteria. So they added more options to the date released or revised search criteria. So you can go by like older than 30 days, older than 60 days, older than 90 days, older than six months, and older than a year. You can now also configure the end user experience for Microsoft 365 app updates. The client setting allows you to enable or disable notifications from Microsoft 365 apps for these updates. I feel like that's already available in Microsoft Endpoint Manager and Intune. There's also a task sequence check for TPM 2.0, very important for Windows 11. You can now enable an application deployment to support implicit uninstall. They also warned about some deprecative features, including managing apps from the Microsoft Store for Business and Education with a Configuration Manager, which if you listen to the podcast, you won't be surprised with that development. Also deprecated is Asset Intelligence and on-premises MDM. So in an update to an aside that I had from a story on last week's episode, Jeremy from PolicyPack reached out to confirm my assumption that you can use PolicyPack to counter the as-of-yet unpatched zero-day vulnerability that's on all versions of Windows right now. This was the zero-day vulnerability disclosed by Abdelhamid Nasseri. And if you didn't catch the last episode, this vulnerability allows threat actors with limited access to a compromised device to easily elevate their privileges to help spread laterally within the network. And the really bad news is there's an exploit that has already been available online for over a week. And the creator of the exploit himself advised others to wait for Microsoft to patch because there was no good mitigation, at least none known to him at the time. Because, well, there is one. Policy Pack's secure run feature in their awesome Least Privilege Manager. And while I already covered this story last week, I did notice that ZDNet covered the fact that it is now being exploited in the wild too. Interestingly, the original vulnerability only received a 5.5 out of 10 for severity, but as reported last week, the researcher who discovered the original vulnerability claims the new vulnerability is much worse. Expect this one to start I expect this one to start to cause bigger waves over the coming week. In some other InfoSec news, BleepyComputer.com reported IKEA has been battling an ongoing cyber attack where threat actors are targeting employees in internal phishing attacks using stolen reply chain emails. In internal emails seen by BleepyComputer, IKEA is warning employees of an ongoing reply chain phishing cyber attack targeting internal mailboxes. These emails are also being sent from other compromised IKEA organizations and business partners. Bleepy Computer have a detailed breakdown of what a successful attack with this campaign looks like, and it involves an Excel document prompting to enable editing and content, and then dropping its malicious payload and installing the QBot Trojan 
and possibly the Imatet malware mentioned on last week's episode and a little bit earlier on this episode. It reminded me that during a session at last year's Policy Pack lockdown event, Paula Janoskovich showed her list of domains that she owns that is very close to the legitimate domains and she gave examples of these types of phishing sites. It was really eye-opening to me and it seems a very easy way for attackers to gain the upper hand and she actually demonstrated it too so if you didn't get to see that event I strongly recommend it. It was really awesome to see and Paula's session in particular was excellent. And now somewhat trying to tie those last two stories together, BeepyComputer.com have warned about Emotet leveraging a false Adobe Acrobat installer for spreading too. Very interestingly, in this example, rather than being an Excel sheet prompting to enable features to bypass the security, this one rolls out via phishing that prompts users to open a PDF in Acrobat that then presents an MSIX installer dialog that shows the publisher info and a green check mark as though it is legitimate, but obviously it is not. So they are conning the system with a fake install dialog. And obviously to someone who's not technical, they would associate Adobe Reader and probably know that the user for PDFs. So they may not be all that surprised that it's prompting to install. They might think it's like an update or a repair and just accept it. So it is a pretty dangerous one. I thought it was interesting to see the MSIX dialogue as well. It's going pretty mainstream if attackers are using it now, huh? And in the last InfoSec related story for this week, Panasonic have confirmed that they were hit by a cyber attack in November. They were not very forthcoming with details though, but they did acknowledge the attack, stating, quote, we cannot predict whether it will affect our business or business performance, but we cannot deny the possibility of a serious incident. End quote. So while it might seem frustrating to some that there isn't more details being provided, personally I like that they didn't just come out with the boilerplate statement that there is no evidence of X, Y, or Z at this time. Because I usually find that to be pretty phony. It's like, well, just because you haven't found the evidence, maybe don't say it like that because you might give the impression that it didn't happen. Nah, maybe that's just my hang up. It's semantics, really. Um, in a ZDNet article, they state that the record media reported that the breach may have also involved employee information, and Panasonic, interestingly, had signed a pact with McAvee in March to create a vehicle security operations center focused exclusively on cyber attacks. I wonder how far they got with things since March. On a previous episode of the podcast, I covered the fact that the amazing Tim Mangan had forked Microsoft's package support framework on GitHub and had been maintaining it all on his lonesome. Well, he just released some new updates and that includes CMD scripts and launches. So he's changed the way that the CMD based scripts are processed by the launcher. He said that they were problematic in the past due to changes at the OS level that occurred since the code was last addressed. And these changes are internal and no changes required to the JSON configuration. However, there is a new PowerShell launcher script used for this purpose that must also be included in your package. He also fixed some file URL launches. He said that the launcher will now determine the local file type association default program to run at the runtime system from the file extension and will start the program with the file 
using the command in desktop package commandlet, so respecting the FTA. Tim also has some other fixes, so if you're into MSIX and you're using the package support framework, be sure to check this one out, because if you're waiting for Microsoft to update the official PSF GitHub repository, you may be waiting for a while. The awesome Dan Goff shared that he reviewed the App Manage Event 2021 session by John Vinsel of Microsoft and reported some new MSIX features that includes shared package containers, so like the AppV connection groups of old, uh, Explorer context menus, pretty important one, per app auto update controls, which to me, when MSIX was first announced, the most exciting part of it was going to be the auto update capabilities. And also start menu folders. But, and there's a catch, Dan reports that this is only on Windows 11, which is very disappointing. Um, I hope there's gonna be a reverse on that and they support these in Windows 10 too. And just a few quick hit stories to wrap up the news for this week. Master Packager is now available in the Microsoft Store. In their tweet, they mentioned it is also available via Windows Package Manager, which I noticed only when I ran an upgrade all command when recording my upcoming festive tech calendar session. It was a nice surprise. The awesome Evergreen script version has been updated to 2.06, and it adds Mozilla Thunderbird, WinRAR, Adobe Pro DC, ControlUp Remote DX, Cisco WebEx, Microsoft Teams VDI plugin, Google Chrome, and OpenJDK. And finally, part two of the free cloud paging packaging training will take place on Friday, December 3rd at 2.30 p.m. GMT. If you didn't get to attend part one and maybe won't even be able to attend part two, but would like to view the training anyway, you can do so by joining the user group, signing up to our Slack workspace, and going to the meeting-recording Slack channel. And now a weekly webinar. Friendly reminder that the festive tech calendar event started on December 1st with technical sessions running every day in December. And a quick plug for myself here, but my session is going to be airing at 10 a.m. this Sunday, December 5th. And I'm going to be covering deploying applications on Windows 365 desktops. And also, by the way, the official charity of choice for the event is Girls Who Code. So you know, get into the festive spirit of giving. If you'd like to donate, I'll share a link with this episode, which is episode 205, and you'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference link. And now some scripts, tricks, and tips. A new book titled Master PowerShell Tricks, Just Enough Administration, authored by David Coella, Crystal Coella, and John O'Neill Sr. has been published on Kindle and that's available to free with those using, I think, as a Kindle Ultimate or Premium. And they say that you'll learn about managing Windows Server 2019 by exploring two new Server 2019 features, the Just Enough Administration and Windows Admin Center. Additionally, you'll learn about PowerShell Direct and other modern administrative techniques that go along with JEA, which is Just Enough Administration. The Dennis Gundarev 
learning threads roll on this week. He posted another excellent one on Twitter where he shared how protocols reduce the bandwidth tax when users have, say, a 4K 60Hz SDR monitor connected directly to a PC that typically uses about 16 gigabits per second of bandwidth. More interesting stuff to see how it optimally performs with such a high-resolution monitor. Master Packager, who, as I mentioned, got their installer onto the Windows Store or Microsoft Store, shared details for others who would also like to get an executable or an MSI installer hosted in the store, which I covered on the podcast before. Microsoft are now entertaining hosting EXEs and MSIs in the store, so you don't have to necessarily modernize your package format to get up there now. And I'll share a link to Master Packager's advice with this episode. Johan Vonnevel posted a really excellent blog on deploying Azure Virtual Desktop with Terraform, which seems to be very in right now, so very topical. Andres Sabella at doitpsway.com has a PowerShell module for pulling all kinds of useful data from Intune and generating some really nice looking reports. So if you're into MEM and Intune, check this one out. The awesome Rob Tiffany has launched his own podcast called the Rob Tiffany Digital Podcast. You can subscribe to hear the first episodes as they come out. Some of the rock stars in the endpoint management game, including my buddy Morris Daly, have published a Windows Update Compliance Workbook Community Edition. So again, if that's your bag, definitely check this out. It's an invaluable resource. Forbes.nl published a blog on deploying from a bicep registry in Azure DevOps or GitHub Actions. Miko Kuivinen shared his work on integrating Shodan Monitor to Azure Sentinel. It's a very simplified solution for starters, but there are some use cases for correlating, alerting, and hunting for things related to public security posture and attack surface. Jaramir Casper shared a draft script, PowerShell script, for getting Azure Virtual Desktop running in Azure Stack HCI cluster. And it looked like this one was actually published on the MS Lab GitHub repository, which seems to be a Microsoft official GitHub branch. The App Manage event have started to publish the sessions that were held at the event in person on their YouTube channel, so check that out. And finally, as part of my day job at Control Up, I've created a series of videos that we're going to be releasing in an advent calendar fashion. So every day on ControlUp's different social media accounts, we're going to be dropping a new video. And it'll cover things like some cool script-based actions that are already available, a sneak peek at some script-based actions that are not yet available, um, some of the different products and features that ControlUp offers, and also some goodies thrown in for good measure too. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.